Now, having finished the study on the parable of the seed and the sower the last two weeks, today we're going to move right into the next parable. And I want us to just stay camped out in this Matthew chapter 13. Today, we're going to take a look at the parable of the wheat and the tares. Bailey Smith in the 80s was here at Red Baptist Church. Anyone here? Okay. few of you? Well, I've heard all about it. He did a, he brought a message on the wheat and the tares. And not too long after the revival was over, um, they had a couple of hundred people made decisions for Christ and they were all baptized. I've heard all the stories. It was in the, what is now the chapel, it was the auditorium at that time. And they had to keep a hose running to keep the baptismal uh, filled with water. And it was blue because of all the blue jeans of people going in after a couple hundred people. That is the greatest problem you could ever have in the life of your church. But it was on this parable. It's on the wheat and the tares. Because the wheat and the tares carries with it a lot of information that should grab you. And it should make you stop and and look within yourself as to where you're at and and how you compare to what Jesus has to say here. This parable is part of what is known as the kingdom parables. You'll find eight of them in Matthew chapter 13. And the reason is because of the underlining theme that Jesus is communicating at this time with these specific parables. Because it is at this time Jesus turned his back on the Jews because of their constant and willful disobedience. And the door opened up to what we know is the Gentiles. And we are living in that time and that period of time right now where the gospel is open to the world and the Gentiles. And will stay open until such a time comes when Christ comes back and the church is gone and the Lord then will turn once again back to the Jews uh, for where he began his covenant. So these parables right here, they kind of build off of one another. And that's what you're going to see. It's like you're watching a movie and right when you think the movie is over and it's a great movie, next thing you know, they run a part two, which is even bigger and better. Kind of like the Vindication Project that's about to take place. Part two, all right? And it's exciting. And so in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to see exactly what is happening in part two. All right? It says this. Jesus is talking and he says, And he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and he went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. 
And the slaves said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. And then he said, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn." Now, when the, de- uh, the deacons, when the disciples heard this, they didn't understand a word that he said. They're just looking at him, okay. Lucky for us, Jesus gave an explanation of this parable. He didn't always do that, but he did give an explanation to this parable, just like he did to the seed and the sower. If you look in verse 36... Jesus breaks down what he just said, and he fills in the blanks. He said this, Then he left the multitude and went into the house, and his disciples came to him. Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And Jesus answered, and he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the, uh, as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks in those who commit lawlessness. And they will cast uh, them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That is the parable of the wheat and the tares. So today, we're just going to pick up right where we left off from last week. Simon Kissmaker, in his book called The Parables, he said this, quote, The parable of the wheat and the tares is actually a parable in which Jesus teaches the coming judgment. It may well be called the parable of the harvest, which is interesting. Just like we saw in the parable of the sower, Satan opposes the kingdom by trying to snatch the word from the hearts of mankind. Remember that. When seeds fell by the hard soil, the rocky soil, the soil with thorns, the Bible says that the devil would come or the enemy would come to snatch that out of their hearts. Well, we see right here he's doing a pretty good job of it too. Because in that parable of the sower, there was only one seed that was good seed. The other three seeds didn't make it. There was one group that could be called or looked at as a true believer, a true Christian, where the word stayed despite all the hardships that takes place. And we see right here 
um, that Jesus is, again, he's focusing on that one specific area the most. 75% of the seed is won over or led astray because of the effects, the effects of our adversary. And right here, we see that only one seed left is believers, the wheat, the wheat. Uh, we are reminded how relentless our adversary is. But it's no surprise to those that know the word because the Bible says that the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If we really could connect to the thought th that Satan is really walking about to bring about calamity, pain, destruction, uh, everything that is evil in your life, like we would react if a lion came walking down an aisle of this church, it would, be a, it would be something that would motivate us so much more than we are motivated right now. And yet Jesus is talking to the disciples and he is literally laying out, you are being stalked. If you're a believer in Jesus, you do have a stalker. You don't see him. His stealth is what makes him uh, number one as far as an enemy would go. But he is real. And to those who bear the name of Christian and really has had that born-again experience with Jesus, you pose a threat. Why? Because you're going to impact people for the one that he hates and despises the most, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you are in his sights. His crosshairs are on you and they're on me. And that's the truth. It is so true. Jesus gives us this parable, which emphasizes that truth. And he's trying to tell the disciples this as well. Satan literally, since the Christians could not be affected by the troubles of life, as we saw in the parable of the seed and the sowers, we see now what happens. What about that 25%? What about that seed that landed on good soil and grew and produced? Remember, Jesus said, this seed will produce some 100-fold, some, uh, some 90, some 60, some 30. It all depends, because all Christians are different. What we see here, we see what Satan does with that group that he could not reach. The others, they're gone. That's exactly where he wants them. You would think that he could ride off into the sunset and glory over the destruction that he did do, but it's not enough. If he can't get you, then he'll get you in another way. And this parable is to show us the other way that Satan goes about to get the elect, the chosen, Christians, whatever. If you're a child of God, the Bible says Satan is constantly desiring to, like Peter, shift you like wheat. But nothing can happen without God's permission. So we get to see Satan's plan B in this parable. Um, we see here that Satan is, in essence, he's an imitator. Uh, he plants false Christians, those are tares, uh, around us. Their goals are to influence 
and affect the lives of believers, especially in how you live and how you serve Jesus. That's what he does. He plants those people around you in your life that will get you to slowly and gradually to get you to adapt to the water uh, as he raises the temperature until such a time comes you're cooking and you don't even know it. That's his plan B. If he lost your soul, he's going to make sure he can destroy your witness because your witness is powerful. Your witness tells the world there's something much bigger and better than what's going on down here on this disease, disaster-filled planet. And so he moves into the second row where now he turns it up a notch to get you and to get me and our witness and what we believe, how we think, what we, what we do. Now we're told in this, in this passage that the sower is the son of man. You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. You know the term son of man was Jesus' favorite messianic title that he used for himself. In fact, the word son of man appears in the New Testament 70 different times. The title literally refers to Christ's incarnate humanity. Uh, what that is, that has to do with we get to see God in flesh and blood, the son of man. And that's who the, the sower in this parable is. It's Jesus. And Jesus uses the same storyline that he just told us in the previous parable. Now, there are three, uh, if you wanted to compare both parables with each other, you'll see three uh, contrasts and comparisons. The first one, in the parable of the seed and the sower, you see uh, that there is one sower but in the wheat and the tares you're going to see that there are two sowers there are two the last one there was one but one but now we see two in verse 25 it says while everyone was sleeping his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then he went away the second sower we know in this parable uh, because it was explained, fortunately, in verse 39, it is the devil. It is Satan. It is our adversary. Now, in the parable of the sower, the seed is the gospel. This is the second contrast that we saw. Uh, the, 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 the seed is the gospel in the parable of the seed and the sower. Uh, the gospel is sown into the hearts of mankind but in the parable of the tares the seeds are the sons that are sown the sons that are sown into the world now there are two different types of seeds or sons there are two different types of sons jesus said there is the good and there is the bad the good seed and the bad seed now the good seed is represented as wheat by Jesus. Now that is really interesting uh, to think about too, and here's why. Israel in the New Testament is portrayed and commonly referred to as a fig tree or as an olive tree or sometimes even as a vine. 
But all three of those can grow to be really big, and they all three have long, deep roots that go deep into the ground. And that is how we see Israel symbolically laid out all throughout the New Testament. And there's a reason for that. Now, these kingdom parables here in Matthew chapter 13, they represent that period of time, as I said earlier, when God is turning to the Gentiles for the establishment of that period of time that the Bible calls a mystery. And that mystery is the local church right here. That's why we don't find churches in the Old Testament. It was not in God's plan. God created the plan when he turned from the Jews with the establishment of the local church today. And for 2,000 years, we've been living in this mystery period of time on God's timetable. Um, the church. The church now takes center stage. And you're the church. You're the church. It's not the brick, mortar, and stone, and the, and the, and the carpet. It's you. You're the church. When you have a relationship with Jesus, you are baptized into Jesus, and you are grafted into the vine. You become a member, a family member of the church. And during this period of time that we find ourselves, the church is pictured as wheat. As wheat. Not a tree. As wheat. Wheat has shallow roots. They don't go deep. They're not firmly established. Wheat is not deeply anchored to the world. Its destiny, the church, is to pass rapidly from the scene in successive harvest periods of time. And then the ultimate time, when the ultimate harvest takes place, church is gone. It's gone. And an interesting thing to note about wheat, and I read about this, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Phillips, uh, my favorite uh, theologian, John Phillips, he said this. He said, quote, When wheat dies downward as it ripens upward, the stalk and the root are dead when the grain is ripe. And this is interesting because just like that, Christian believers are to die to this world as they ripen for heaven. Ever thought about that kind of a comparison? That is really interesting when you think about that. First thing that comes to my mind are all the tons of times I've seen Billy Graham and him preaching and teaching about how he is ready to go to heaven. He's excited to die because he gets to be in the presence of Jesus. And that's exactly how we are compared to we're wheat. We're wheat. We have to die in order to live. Now Jesus tells us that Satan is the one who is sowing his seeds among the wheat. And this is because Satan cannot destroy the wheat. Why? Because God hasn't given him permission. Remember, Jesus told uh, Peter, as Peter was talking to Jesus, right out of the blue, I mean, just 180 out of the blue, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I want you to know, Satan has demanded to have you. 
I guarantee you he stopped talking. I guarantee you he stopped talking. Peter, when he heard that. And then Jesus followed up and he says, but I've been praying for you, Peter. That was his way of saying, don't you worry about it. I got you. I just want you to know what Satan, what he wants. Peter, he wants to get a hold of you. And it's the same thing. It goes for everyone in this room. It's the same thing. Yeah, Peter's famous. He got his name in the book. We know that. But God's love for him is no different than it is for you or me. He wants to have and he wants to do the same thing for you as he wants to do for for me. But he doesn't get to. He doesn't have that authority. The Bible makes it clear. So what does he do? Uh, If Satan can't get to you in that way, then he's going to create fake, false, or counterfeit Christians, and he's going to put them in your life. He's going to send them your way. He's going to do every single thing that he can to get you to start believing and buying into things that's just not scriptural. And we see this over and over and over in all of the Pauline epistles. We see this over and over, how the church was under attack by those who wanted to creep in and uh, lead or uh, astray, mislead the believers with, with stuff that is complete heresy. If, if Satan cannot kill them, he'll just join them. And how does he join them? He does so by sending counterfeit believers while... While the master, while they were sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed seeds, weeds, tares, imitation Christians into the field. Ever since Pentecost, God has been sowing generation after generation of good seeds on this planet. And here we are today, January 19th, 2020, at a place called Red Baptist Church, where God has chosen you to be sown in this area for this specific time to impact the world that God has put you in charge of, to influence those who are around you so that you can really make a difference in their life. We've had many, many good seeds in our church, haven't we? We can sit here right now and we can reminisce. We've had some real super giants of good seeds in our church. We've also had some tares. We've also had some tares. Within this parable, we see God's plan is to allow both the wheat and the tares to coexist until the time comes when he's going to send forth his angels to separate the two. And this is called the harvest time. Now, a suggestion is made by the master's servants in this parable, which are angels, because you read that in verse 41, when it says, the Son of Man will send forth his angels. So now we know who they are. But a suggestion is made by them that they, this is the angels talking, that they should go and separate the wheat from the tares. But Jesus 
responds to them and he makes it clear that that's not going to happen. Because in the process of doing that, some of the wheat may become hurt or damaged. So Jesus simply reminds them that when it is time to do so, he alone will give them the order of when to go. And until that time comes, the order given is to stand down. Right now, it's in a stand down uh, moment of time. Remember in the New Testament, we read when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he could have called down uh, hundreds of thousands of angels, and they would have been here in a blink of an eye if Jesus had done that. The same thought, the same thinking goes. Can you imagine that? Right now, there's a real place. It's called heaven. It's in the spiritual realm. Angels are on guard. They're on post. They are ready to do whatever he says in a moment's notice. They're ready. But that order's not been given yet. You know, throughout history, we have seen the damage that is done when people react to want to rush in and just rid out what they think is bad. We've seen that over and over again. It's no surprise that Jesus made it clear, no, they're going to have to coexist until I tell you when, because I don't want any of them getting hurt. You know, in hundreds of years past, since Christ and the disciples were here on earth, there have been many a time when people, in the name of God, took matters into their own hands to purge the church. Hundreds of thousands of people were murdered by the Roman Catholic Church. It's called the Dark Ages for a reason. But Protestants are just as guilty of creating, uh, maybe not on such a grander of a scale, but the same thing, and their zeal to purge, to get all the bad people out because this is the way it's supposed to be, because this is what we think and why. It's the same thing. Angels are ready to rush in, and, and we're so quick to want to rush in and fix things too. But the Bible makes it clear that we are not to be that way. We are not to act as a judge and jury, most of all, an executioner. And that doesn't mean that church discipline doesn't exist, because church discipline does exist. It should exist. It existed in the New Testament. It just means that church discipline today is to function as a means of restoring a brother or a sister who gets away from the Lord. We just, you restore a person. And through love, you win them back. You win them back. To become judge and jury over the lives of people, um, that's left for God and, and God alone. It says, it says God. And right here in this parable, we see that point, that thought, literally being played out as well. The angels are told to wait. And so what are we to make of this? We are told that we are going to have to learn to live among sinful people. And it means we are going to have to go to church where there are going to be imitation Christians. And this is not the age of judgment that we live in. This is the age of evangelism. We are not called to judge and condemn. I'll say this again. Our job is not to judge and condemn. 
Our job is to witness and win. That is our job. You are to witness and to win. How are you to witness? I would hope that your life witnesses that there is something different about you before you have to open your mouth to let them know that you're not a vegetarian, you're a Christian. I would hope that your witness would send a signal that there's something different about you and it would precede the words that would come out of your mouth. Way too often, it's, it's, a, it's a distorted message. Someone will be saying things they shouldn't be saying, acting in ways they shouldn't be acting, and then they throw something down about being a Christian or they go to a church. And so everyone that's the recipients of this beloved individual, type of individual, is hearing this stuff, and to them, that negativity, that, that ugly picture, that, um, that damaged view of what a Christian is, is now applied to a church because they just tied themselves to a church they could be a bad seed. But you see, to a world that doesn't know the difference, they don't know. Our lives, our witness, really needs to match up what we profess to believe in. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. Now, the parable of the tares deals with three, three groups of people. We see the children of God, the children of the devil is the second, and the third is the lost humanity among whom both of these seeds have been sown. That's the three groups in this parable right here. Satan, as I said earlier, cannot uproot you, uh, true Christians, but he can and he does place counterfeit Christians all around us because his goal, he wants to make you as ineffective as he can. If you are ineffective, he lost you, but no one else is going to be lost because of you. Because your witness is not where it needs to be. Where it should be. Your witness is, is gone. It's gone. Um, a third contrast comparison in the, in the, in the two parables is seen in that uh, in the parable of the sower, the, uh, the field was the human heart. Remember when the seed fell along uh, the soil, the rocky, the thorny? That was different descriptions of the heart in the sower parable. But in the wheat and the tares, when you take a look at the word field, the field is now, it's the world. It's the world. And the sons have been sown throughout the world see and it is critically important to be aware of satan's counterfeits he has counterfeit christians up on the screen you'll see this first one in second corinthians eleven twenty six, paul said i have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers dangers from robbers dangers from my countrymen dangers from gentiles dangers from the city dangers in the wilderness dangers on the sea and here we go and dangers among false brethren we see false christians and these false christians what do they bring with themselves they bring a false gospel a counterfeit gospel you'll see this on the next scripture Galatians 1, 6-9, Paul said this. 
He said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. That's really strong language. We couldn't get away with that. Paul did. It is such a big thing to Paul that for anyone to come along and add to the gospel, which is to cause people to be led astray, Paul's language is, let them be accursed. Let them be damned, is what he is saying. Because he doesn't want them taking everyone with them. And thus, all the problems that we saw in the lives of all these New Testament churches, from all the letters that we read, from Jude uh, to, through Peter, uh, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke. I mean, all of these epistles, we see these, these challenges. You know, one of the greatest weapons regarding this false gospel that we have to deal with today is this message of tolerance and a watered-down version of what salvation is. In our politically correct society that we live in today right now, it is this subject, it's this theme of tolerance. There's many ways to get there. That makes everybody all happy and you can breathe a little bit better. They, they want you to hang on to, to, to believe, to buy into, to sell, to, to tell, to talk about. There are many ways to get there. Your, your, your goal, your job is to just find the way that works for you. The only problem with that is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father yet by me. There's just one way. No other name has been given unto men under heaven other than the name of Jesus. It's not Muhammad. It's not Confucius. It's not Mary Baker Eddy. It's not Joseph Smith. It's not Charles Taz Russell. It's none of these people of all these cults today. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The only way is through Jesus. But the counterfeit gospel today is what we are up. And we should be tolerant. We should be tolerant enough to love people to love them even when or if we disagree with them, but to be firm and steadfast in what we know what the Bible has to say. The bridge is out, and Christians know that. And our job is to warn those who are driving in that direction to recognize and realize that bridge is out, and you may not even know it. Or you might have bought into a lie, which even makes it even harder because you think what you're doing is okay. But it's not. It's critically important to know what you believe and why you believe what you believe. Your, answer, your answers should be drenched 
on what the Bible has to say. Our job as Christians is to oppose Satan and expose his lies. That's, that's our job. This is what is emphasized throughout the New Testament, and that's what is emphasized throughout Red Baptist Church, to expose. What is to be the result of the tares in this parable? Well, the Bible makes that really clear. It says that when Jesus declares harvest time and it has arrived, his angels will go forth. And his angels will gather up and they will bind and bound the tares and they will be cast into the furnace of fire. And in that place, in verse 41 and 42, it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, that bridge is out. And at that time, many of them know that bridge is out. They don't care. A lot of people don't even know there's a bridge that's out, but they think they're safe, and they're going to find out. No, that's, that's not going to work the way that they think. Why? Because they haven't turned to Jesus. It's Jesus. You know, the notion of a genuine hell today is not something that is a strongly believed subject either. Uh, in 2016, the Gallup poll uh, stated that almost half of all Americans, uh, 46% to be precise, and that was just four years ago, do not even believe that hell exists. In the Baylor Religion Survey poll, that poll showed that only 55% of Americans believe in Satan. And to be honest with you, I thought that was kind of high. When you think about that, you got to look at, well, what does that really say? I'll tell you what it really says. More than half of all Americans don't buy into Jesus or they don't believe him or they think he's delirious. Why? Because Jesus is the one who told us these things about our adversary. And to not believe in that is to not believe in the words of Jesus. But I can guarantee you they, can't, they don't compute the two together. They don't think about the other side. Well, this is what Jesus says. This what we find in the scriptures. The existence of the devil and his desires to take everyone to hell is clearly defined in the Bible. Uh, that weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's not a temporary thing either. That's another thing that's a strong um, hell-to belief uh, that you'll hear today. It's just temporary. Well, no, I mean, there's a lot of verses that speak to that, but nothing more clear than we find in Revelation when it says, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. I don't know where it says that Peter's out somewhere at some point. The Bible is clear. And the same poll, that same poll finds that 92% of all Americans have Bibles, but half of that number read it, and only half of that number do so regularly. So is it any wonder people are so confused because they just don't know what the Bible says? They don't read it. They don't, they don't read it. And when you don't know something and it's really, really important, you are always going to be open to want to plant something in those blanks that makes you feel good. 
because you don't know something, and it's a really big deal. So what do you do? Well, then you start thinking, well, then it probably means, and then you start believing that. Uh, I tell you, a, a real popular one, This uh, people that would say, um, God helps those who help themselves. Really? You really think that? The Bible doesn't think that, but you can think that. If it makes you f- feel good, you okay, but that's... No, that's not, that's not true. We will always fill in the blank with something. You know what we should really be driven to? Don't you want to know the answers? I want to know the answers. What does the Bible have to say? The Bible has the answer on everything. We just need to get into it and let it get into us. And that's where, that's where it starts. But at the end of this parable, God shifts from the tares and where their destiny will be and what does he say he ends it with that last verse but the righteous they will shine forth like the sun you know why that's in verse 43 you know why because when a person decides to follow jesus christ and they have their sins forgiven and god comes out of heaven and he comes into your heart and he converts you, and he changes you. He takes up residence inside of you. He gives you a brand new start. He gives you a brand new focus. He gives you a brand new vision, a brand new hope. You don't have to worry about it anymore. He's got it. When he comes into your life, you now contain, you now portray the righteousness of Jesus to a world. Because prior to that, The only righteousness you had was yours. And yours isn't worth a bucket. Neither is mine. But when God comes into your heart and he gives you the gift of his son and you become adopted into his family, uh, you're a spiritual son and daughter, you're royalty. You are royalty to God. And because of that, the Bible says, they shall shine forth. Why? Because you are representing Jesus. Jesus in you, the hope of glory. So, what do we take away from this parable today? What do we leave with as we leave? Number one, God has planted you right where you are. If you're going to school, if you're living in this area, if you're whatever job you're working at, your family... Your neighbors, God has planted you right where you're at. Number two, as planted seeds, God wants you to bloom. You are to be fruitful now, right now. When I was in seminary, I remember there were a lot of seminary students, but not a lot of them that were plugged into a church. They were waiting to get the diploma and go be that worker in the church. We need to be working in the church before we get the diploma as well as after the diploma. We need to be active. We don't wait until that period arrives and then we start acting whatever way we think we're going to act like. We are to be fruitful right now. Right where you're at, get going right now. Three, You are planted in order to influence the weeds. You want to influence the weeds 
to become good seeds. I want everybody to remember this. I really remember this. There was one day when you were a weed. That's an oh my, but that is really, is it not true? You were a weed once upon a time. Some of y'all were probably poison ivy. But you were a weed. Four, we are called to live among weeds. And five, there are only two sowers. There are only two types of seeds, but there is just one harvest. Just one harvest. And that harvest hasn't started yet. And praise God for that because we still have time to influence those that will maybe move from being a weed to being seen as wheat. We all know people who need to know the message of the gospel. And they need to see the gospel in us. In every way you can this week, show them the gospel. And in reference to salvation, I put this on the bottom of your bulletin so you wouldn't forget it. It's a quote by Steve Lawson. I read it this week, and it was so good. I'm like, man, this really ties with the message today. He said, salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. Amen? Amen. Because we were all weeds once upon a time. And many of you now, most of you now, you're not. The wheat and the tares is a true story that's being lived out amongst us. And we have the ability to change that by what we do for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just want to come before you right now. And Lord, we want to thank you for these words that you have given us uh, regarding the wheat and the tares. And Lord, this morning, we just want you to speak to us. God, I want to pray for those specifically here now, and maybe they're struggling in their spiritual walk. Maybe, God, they're not really sure if they're a wheat or a tear. And if that's the case, Lord, would you encourage them to speak to any of the ministers down here at the front? Because, God, they can leave here today, and they can know the answer to that. They can know it. These things have I said unto you in order that you may know that you have eternal life, as you told us in your word. God, I pray and ask that you would speak to that group of, uh, of people who are here today in that way. Lord, for the wheat that are here in this room, and Lord, I really pray that you would really wake us up to the growth that you have called us all to have. God, I pray that we would represent you both on and off the field. And God, that those who are closest to us would really see it the most. Lord, if there is anyone in this room today and they realize their witness does not match what they believe, God, that they would pray to you today and ask for a brand new start because, Lord, you'll give it to them if, if they ask. And then, God, give them the power to live that out this week. Lord, more than anything, I just ask, we just ask that you would meet us wherever we are at in this room this morning and that you would lead us to where you want us to go and that you would help us to know it. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.